It's Christmas, but as the night draws in, there's nothing festive about the weather. It's cold, it's dark, and it's lashing with rain. A huge band of electrical storms is rolling across Western Europe, and the skies are dancing with the crackle of lightning, accompanied by booming thunder. But warm and dry inside a royal palace in Bieleroy, Normandy, a grand feast is underway. The hall is brightly lit by fires and candles, bustling with the great and good of the Plantagenet Empire. Bishops, barons and knights are laughing and toasting one another with fine wines imported from across Europe. People are exchanging gifts and telling jokes. Butlers and servants are threading their way through the crowd, topping up glasses and drinking cups with flagons brought out from the kitchen. They have their work cut out. There are so many guests crammed into the palace that the feasting has spilled out of the great hall and into side chambers. This is the only place to be seen this Christmas. And at the head of it all sits a Plantagenet king called Henry. Only it's not Henry II. The year is 1171. And as we heard in the last episode, our old friend is currently in Ireland trying to bring the Irish kings and church under English control. The man presiding over the festive feasting in Normandy is his eldest son, now known as Henry the Young King. He was crowned as his father's co-king, an honour designed to set him up to take over as Plantagenet Patriarch one day. And he's revelling in his new role. He's not quite 16 years old, and here he is, lording it over the cream of Norman high society, giving a Christmas party for the ages. But scratch the surface of this glittering social occasion, and you'll find that things aren't quite as rosy as they seem. As the banqueting goes on, around the halls and chambers of the palace, little groups of men can be spotted, furtively whispering to one another. They're not conspiring against the young king. In their eyes, he's doing everything right, handing out free drinks and a warm bed in the palace to anyone who wants it. No, their target is the elder Henry, who's off gallivanting around Ireland. The lords of Normandy are muttering that, lately, the old King Henry has been as tight-fisted as his son has been generous that he's been taxing them too heavily and confiscating lands he says rightfully belong to the crown. They're moaning that greedy old Henry has doubled his income from the region at their expense. And they're probably still tutting about the disgraceful murder of Thomas Becket, which happened almost exactly a year ago in Canterbury. As the night wears on and drink after drink is poured, these complaints get a little louder and then they get a little closer to the young king. Until eventually, two men feel bold enough to take a chance. One of them is called Ralph of Fay. He's young Henry's great uncle on his mother's side. The other is a lord called Hugh of St. Moore. At some point, they approach young Henry. We can imagine them slyly sidling up to him, perhaps placing an avuncular hand on his shoulder. And then, under the cover of thunder outside, they start to murmur a version of the complaint that's been drifting round the palace all evening. Of course, this version is spun in a way that flatters the young king. 
It's not a hard sell. They're just seeding ideas in the boy's mind. No one knows exactly what they whisper in his ear, but I imagine they suggest he's every bit as much a king as his father. Your Grace, if this great party is anything to judge by, you'd be much better loved by the people of Normandy, and who knows where else in the Plantagenet lands. Whatever the precise words are, it's done brilliantly. More than the wine goes to young Henry's head that night. The young king has only worn his co-crown for a year and a half, but by the time Ralph of Fay and Hugh of Saint-Maur are done with him, he's ready to gamble it. He'll risk tearing the entire Plantagenet dynasty apart. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 10, Collision Course. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com dynasty. Indeed.com dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Last episode, we heard how Henry scurried off to Ireland to avoid the fallout from Becket's death, and he's been doing a fairly good job of conquering it while he's there. But now we're finally getting to know the first of his children properly, and it turns out that Henry maybe should have spent a little less time conquering and a little more time bonding. There's an old cliché that self-made men and women always find their children disappointing. The father or mother does things the hard way, starts out with nothing, scraps for everything, and wins what they have through sheer force of will. But they spoil their kids by sparing them the same struggle. They hand them life on a plate, then wonder why they grow up lacking the same drive, determination and energy. It's a cliché because it's often true, and it definitely goes a long way to understanding the life and career of Henry the Young King particularly why he's so susceptible to older noblemen whispering complaints about his father in his ear during Christmas banquets. We've met young Henry a few times in our story so far. He was born in 1155, the second of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine's children, and the first to survive his early years. He spent quite a lot of his childhood with his mum in English palaces and hunting lodges, gaining a new sibling every now and then. Unlike either of his parents, he's born a royal, and that means his destiny is a lot more assured than either of theirs was. 
But the downside is, it also means he's a political pawn. As we heard, he was only five when he was married to Margaret, the daughter of King Louis of France. Aged seven, he was sent off to live with Thomas Becket, as a reward for Becket's loyal service. When Becket blew up, he was whipped back out of that household and returned to his father's side to get a first-hand look at what being a king is all about. But it's hardly a long apprenticeship. In June 1170, young Henry is formally crowned as co-king of England. As coronations go, it's the full shebang. A huge gold crown, anointing with holy oil, investiture with the sceptre and rod and ring, all the regalia of kingship. You can imagine what that would do to the ego of a 15-year-old, although maybe you'd rather not. And yet, once he becomes a king, nothing much actually changes. Which is incredibly annoying to young Henry. It seems like he's got a lot going for him. He's tall and good-looking. The most handsome prince in all the world, says one well-informed contemporary. He has a crown and a queen, the 12-year-old Margaret. But he's also getting some major mixed messages. On the one hand, he's been gifted the titles of King of England and Duke of Normandy and Count of Anjou. When old Henry dies, he's told he's going to be in charge of the whole Plantagenet Empire, with his brothers controlling Aquitaine and Brittany, but reporting in to him. On the other hand, while old Henry is alive, all this is pretty much fantasy. Henry the Young King has been given unbelievable rank and glory by his father. But he very quickly finds out that's all he's getting. Old Henry only really had him crowned to show off that he could, that he's in control of the future as well as the present not because he wanted his son to wield any real authority. In fact, the young king is very much not allowed to rule England or Normandy. He's basically a medieval trust fund kid. He can throw parties and go to tournaments and live the high life. He's given pocket money, literally a monthly handout, so he can pay knights to hang around with him. But his dad reserves the right to pick which knights he's allowed to have in his household. And when it comes to government... Dad also still insists on doing all the important stuff. What's more, the young king's coronation was an important factor in the events that spiralled towards the murder of Thomas Becket six months afterwards. Becket was outraged that young Henry had been crowned by someone who wasn't him. And that was a big reason he returned to England, which got him killed there's perhaps a little confusion and resentment lingering in Henry's teenage mind, maybe even some guilt. More than that, though, it's frustration that eats the young king up in the months after his coronation. His father leaves him as regent in England when he's across the Channel, but he's still surrounded by guys euphemistically known as tutors, his dad's advisers, who have to rubber stamp any decision the young king makes. They can even overrule him. He's a king with a toy crown and nothing more. He's desperate for an opportunity to prove himself, and he's never been given it. It's a relatable problem, though usually with your boss at work rather than your father, who's a king, and we'll be diving more into Henry's mindset in this week's subscriber episode. 
Now that we know all this about young Henry, it's easy to understand just how primed he was for the flattery of Ralph of Fay and Hugh of Saint-Maur. It'll take some time for him to respond to the poison dripped into his ear at that fateful Christmas party. But when he does, the fallout is going to be spectacular. Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. Just over a year after the young King Henry hosts his big Christmas party in Normandy, he and his father travel to Montferrand. That's a town on the eastern borders of Eleanor's Duchy of Aquitaine. It's January 1173, and the Henrys are there on important royal business. It's a huge diplomatic assembly, attended by every major count in the region, and even another king, the ruler of the Spanish Kingdom of Aragon. The whole town is buzzing with royal servants and diplomats, every lodging room taken and every inn and tavern alive with the sound of people gossiping and speculating on high politics. They're there to negotiate another Plantagenet child marriage, this time between the five-year-old Prince John, the youngest of the Plantagenet kids, and Alicia, the daughter of a wealthy local lord called Humbert of Maurienne. This marriage will bring all sorts of juicy diplomatic advantages. It'll strengthen Plantagenet authority in southern France, where old Henry has been trying to assert his might for more than 15 years. And it'll provide somewhere for young John to rule when he grows up. Old Henry had given John the nickname of Jean Santerre, or John Lackland, referring to the fact that he's run out of places for his children to inherit. This is a way of solving that problem. So far, this should be good news for all the Plantagenets. But then, at Montferrand, old Henry drops a bombshell. 
to show Humbert of Maurienne that his daughter's not marrying a complete landless dud, Old Henry says he'll grant little John a few castles elsewhere in France. Those castles are Chinon, Loudon and Mirabeau. Those names aren't too important. There won't be a test after this. But what is important is whose patch they're on. They're in Anjou, land young Henry is supposed to rule himself. They're his. And here's his father giving them to a child as if they're wooden toys. For months, the young king has been stewing on the fact that he doesn't seem to be getting the respect or power he plainly deserves. Now that isn't just confirmed, it's chucked in his face in the most public way imaginable. It's a humiliation. And the young king, just months away from his 18th birthday, flips out. He throws a tantrum in front of everyone says he won't allow the castles to go to John, won't hear any talk of it, and threatens to walk out of the conference altogether. To old Henry, this must all look like teenage angst, and a perfect illustration of why he's been keeping the immature young king on a tight leash. But to young Henry, who's been brooding over these daddy issues for months now, the castles are the final straw. He's now sure that as long as he's only a co-king, He's nothing. Worth less than a five-year-old. From now on, relations between the two Henrys aren't just frosty, they're glacial. Old Henry has lost all respect for his son, who he thinks has never had to earn or scrap for anything in his life. Young Henry has lost all respect for his dad, who he thinks is never going to see him as anything other than a baby. In a way, they're both right and they're on a collision course. Just a few weeks after the row at Montferrand, they're at Chinon Castle, one of the fortresses that old Henry has promised to give to John. The young king decides to act. His dad has put a few of his goons on permanent watch duty, trailing young Henry everywhere to make sure he doesn't do anything daft. One night at Chinon, the young king hosts a dinner for them, and cracks open a few flagons of the finest wines in the castle's cellar. Then a few more. Then a few more. Before long, they're all rolling about the corridors. And after that, his dad's friends are out cold in a drunken stupor. Which is when young Henry makes a break for it. With a few of his own loyal knights, he sneaks out of the castle at midnight. They raid the stables for horses and gallop hard through the night, changing rides as they go. They travel almost 100 miles before stopping for breath. It's a sign of how desperate the young king is that he leaves his wife Margaret behind at Chinon. But he's determined to escape from his overbearing father. He plans to gather allies and then show old Henry that he's a king in more than just name. He's going to raise a rebellion against his own family. In the morning, when the castle wakes up and old Henry finds his son gone, he saddles up himself and sets off in hot pursuit. But the young king has had too much of a head start. Within a couple of days, he's reached the lands of a man guaranteed to back him in rebelling against his father. 
King Louis VII of France, his wife's father, his mother's ex, and most importantly, his dad's greatest rival. Just days after that, the young king starts welcoming to his side would-be rebels, people sick of his father's heavy-handed rule. That's no surprise. Old Henry has made enough enemies in his time that there are bound to be people all over the Plantagenet Empire and its neighbouring lands who'd like to give him a bloody nose. But what no one can have predicted is who the most high-profile rebels would be. Henry's younger brother, Richard. And his younger brother, Geoffrey. And most astonishingly of all, their mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine. This isn't just a son turning on his father, it's a family about to rip itself in half. That's all coming up on This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time, we're going to unpick the two Henrys' troubled relationship, plus more on the cow-studded invasion of Ireland. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts.